In the heart of PNG's capital, Port Moresby, there are plenty of signs of wealth. Every second vehicle seems to be a newish four-wheel drive. There are high-rise apartments going up. A South Korean company has just convinced the government it would be a good idea to build a casino. And dozens of big boats are tied up at the yacht club that's a stone's throw from the Australian expatriates enclave near the city centre. The country's been earning well in the past three or four years. Budget surpluses on the back of huge earnings from commodities like oil and gold. But in this land of contrasts, the signs of poverty are obvious. And a key challenge for the new government is to translate the stronger economic performance into improved living standards for all Papua New Guineans. For most, daily life involves trying to honestly eke out a few kina. A common sight is the street peddlers selling, well, not too much. I asked Edward in Baroko, a suburb of Port Moresby, how long he spent at his tiny table laden with betel nuts. Seven days a week. So, betel nuts, and what else is there? Betel nuts, smoke. Yeah, only betel nuts and smoke. Oh, okay. You've got two packets of smokes there. You sell individual cigarettes, do you? Yes. What does a cigarette cost? Seven, seven fifty a packet, and then we sell it all 50 for loose ones. Okay, now I'm speaking with Barnabas, who's also selling uh, some smokes and a betel nut. You're behind the fence. Isn't that a bit difficult to sell when you're behind the fence? No, it's not that difficult because we have uh, regular customers to the table. Regular? Yeah. Okay. What do you charge for one betel nut? Um, we go 50 there, uh, betel nut, 50 to 30. That big pile there, you must have, uh, I guess, a couple of hundred. Uh, Would you sell that today? Probably we'll sell by half of it tonight. By tonight, we should go down by half of the pile. In downtown Port Moresby, just around the corner from the American Embassy, Paul, calmly sitting cross-legged on a sack on the footpath, was doing rudimentary shoe repairs. Do you go to the same spot every day? Yes, I do. How much work do you get? Come here for yeah, one week. And then what do you do? I fix shoes and selling bitternut, selling smoke. Uh, how, do you, how do you get those? I bought it at market. You're, the, you're not making much out of the cigarettes then? Yes. I'm told cobblers are a recent addition to the street-side commerce. There are certainly dozens around. Joanson's going to uh, interpret for Simon, and Simon's a shoe repair man. Take us through this. He's got quite a few different sorts of shoes, but he's got just a couple of tools there to do it all with. How elaborate can the repair job be with just a, a file and a bit of a hacksaw and a knife? These are the man-made uh, tools, and uh, we normally use this tools to repair the broken shoes uh -huh. and uh, he can actually sew leather on there yeah. yes leather like you see this one already broken it, it came off and he's still with these simple tools able to to sew it into the sole of the shoe yes it's people like this who see little of the surplus money from the improving economy there's also little going into services which have been neglected for decades health and education in some areas are said to be going backwards and roads are poorly maintained or non-existent Criminality is a major concern, not just the common theft which has security guards everywhere, but the theft of hundreds of millions from the public purse each year by senior public servants and politicians and others. Francesco Sarago, the Catholic Bishop of Garoka in Eastern Highlands Province, says there's a growing disparity between the haves and have-nots. The class of those who have, and they have ways to have more, is growing. And those who were there are still there. Most people, if they don't buy from the street peddlers, depend on the traditional markets rather than shops. For a small fee, traders can get a couple of square metres of space from which they try to sell just about anything. 
as I found on a visit to a market in Garoka. Batteries and smokes, smokes and batteries, lighters, cooking oil, Maggi two-minute noodles, lots of Maggi two-minute noodles. It's a very quiet market, hundreds of people here, but uh, it's all very quiet and relaxed. Homemade soaps, more homemade soap. Hello, how are you? You're selling plastic bags. Well, you get 20 bags for 50 toya. The president of the PNG Chamber of Commerce, Michael Mabry, says only 2% of the population is formally employed. He says many feel excluded. I think it's true to say that some of our um, law and order issues are also economic issues of people feeling that they're not involved in the uh, benefits that the country uh, have received and are continuing to receive. The Minister for Community Development, Dame Carol Kidu, has been promoting the virtues of people working outside the formal sector. And through education and training, she hopes their opportunities to make and sell products can be improved. She told me what she has in mind. Ah, just small roadside selling and hopefully some cottage industries like making, uh, like today, the banana chips, sewing clothes, making soaps. There's all sorts of small-scale things that people do in cottage industries. And um, some grow into larger businesses. Some remain always at that micro level, just a daily survival rate. Betel nut selling is regarded regard as fast money because it's, it's so popular and it's, it's a quick return. Whereas um, uh, cooking scones and selling them is not as so much so, but many people do things like that. 85% of Papua New Guineans live a semi-subsistent lifestyle in the country's vast hinterland, many in the five highlands provinces that straddle the centre of the mainland. Here in the rich volcanic soils and with mostly good rainfall, I'm told just about anything will grow. Most families have access to enough land to grow vegetables for their own use and a little extra for the markets. The potential for agriculture and horticulture would seem to be huge and is being touted as the way ahead for the country. Coffee production is already important for around 400,000 families. PNG coffee is well regarded, but most, typically around two-thirds, receives the lowest quality grade because it takes a small farmers too long to get it to the processor. And often the roads, or lack of them, are to blame. How bad are they? Well, I went for a ride with Steve Layton from a Garoka NGO called Appropriate Technologies, or AT Projects. Uh, this section of the road would really represent pretty much most of the, the roads in this province. No maintenance. Perhaps the last time a grader went over this section of road was five, six years ago. Uh, the only maintenance being done at the moment is the work we're doing, which is really just cleaning drains to try and, get, try and get the water off the road. There's talk of reintroducing animal traction using horses and cattle to pull carts as a solution to the Highlands transport woes. Francis Cowper is a leading businessman who's now a budding politician. He's running in one of the Highlands provinces, Chimbu, and one of his prime aims is better roading there. If we can get a basic infrastructure in our, our district going, our people are very resourceful people, resourceful people. They can grow coffee, they can grow vegetables. Uh, we could easily convert the current government's green revolution policy into, into something real by developing agriculture in a big way in our villages. But if you develop agriculture and you don't have means of t transporting your, your, what you grow to the markets, no point 
having that policy. The Chamber of Commerce's Michael Mabry says people have to realise roads are just one of the many demands on government funding. Since independence, a lot of uh, people have felt that everything has to be done by the government and we found that before independence, many people had problems and they solved them themselves, particularly in the highlands. Uh, they wanted a road, so they went with picks and shovels and they made a road. Another impact of the poor infrastructure is the growing struggle to attract trained staff to the health outposts or the rural schools. I heard one account of a teacher alone at a school with 300 pupils. In other areas, people are said to be losing Tok Pisin, the vital lingua franca in a nation of 818 languages, because of the complete absence of schooling. Pete Rains of Save the Children says getting staff to remote areas is a huge challenge. So if you are living in an urban area and you are asked to go to live in a rural area, it's very tough. Um, even if you were to bring your family, for example, there may be a school, but there may not be good health services. So if one of your children fell ill, then it would be very difficult to, to get the right services. So people are quite reluctant to go and work in rural areas. And I think that's across the board in terms of government services, if it's health or education or law and order, etc. The poverty is accentuated by the presence of HIV-AIDS, the greatest challenge facing the country. It's estimated that up to 2% of the population have the virus and there are signs of an exponential increase in the heavily populated rural areas. Community Development Minister Dame Carol Kidu says she fears entire families could succumb to HIV in rural PNG. Dame Carol says there appears to have been a levelling off in cases in urban areas such as Port Moresby, while numbers with the disease in the highlands have escalated dramatically. This is of major concern because they are the ones who have less access to services, less chance of having antiretroviral drugs and things of that nature. Um, I can personally see perhaps even you know, complete family lines being almost wiped out by HIV the way it's looking in the, the rural um, growth rate. Oxfam, which works closely with local NGOs dealing with HIV AIDS cases in the Highlands, says the apparent levelling off in the cities may be because many of the victims are returning to their rural homes. Pauline Comalong works at Oxfam's Highlands base in Garoka. So these are the people that are actually spreading the virus in the local communities and we have a counsellor and she says every time they come to her for counselling in their very late stages she always identifies them as coming from Port Mosby or Lay. Zerald, who lives in a remote village in Chimbu province, says prostitution is common there. He says sometimes women see it as the only way to get food. I would force them to go out with uh, male partners, maybe they may not uh, have any protective uh, methods and uh, that is why I think, uh, like in the village that I live, I do not see things like condoms sold in a small trade store which would, uh, you know, become available to uh, persons wishing to have uh, sexual relations so thereby making it difficult. And uh, you know, they, they probably don't care, you know, because, you see, life is generally very difficult, so they don't care whether, you know, they don't, they care less, you know. The government has in the past five years begun to realise the enormity of the challenge posed by AIDS. Bodies such as the National AIDS Council have direct links with the Prime Minister's office and work is being done, but their efforts are stymied by a lack of facility, staff and money. NGOs often fill the void. Save the Children's Pete Rains runs poorer support or community support in the Highlands. We try and work particularly with vulnerable groups in the country, women who sell sex, uh, men who have sex with other men, youth, particularly out-of-school youth, 
and we work largely through a peer education uh, method which means that we train people who are themselves members of these vulnerable groups and that they then assist their peers by spreading information and providing better access to services. We're also trying to work with communities to help the communities themselves to recognise some of the areas where by changing behaviour or changing the way in which the community manages it itself they can actually keep themselves safe from HIV. The church's involvement is also vital. Awareness campaigns are focused on ABC, abstinence, being faithful and condom use. But the Catholic Church, at least, is focusing on just the A and B. Garoka Bishop Francesco Sarago says the epidemic is a sign of cultural breakdown. This new behaviour of free for everything, free for everybody. In the past, the youth and the people were controlled by the system of the clan. So even if there were some cases of infidelity and things like that, but generally there was a control. Today, that traditional control is, is missing. And then the movement of people all over the country. The change of culture or is the culture broken down? Yeah, broken down, yes. A culture is broken down. And the movement of people towards anywhere, mining, town, work, and things like that. Unfortunately, that has create, created a kind of free, I'm free. Unless that is changed, it's very difficult to control it. While there is a lot of work going into awareness raising about the virus and how to combat it, AT Projects is helping victims as they near death. Steve Layton says they were asked by the National AIDS Council to develop ideas which might ease the discomfort of people dying of AIDS. They came up with a series of simple, vital and most importantly, cheap gadgets. I think the, the first thing people have to understand is when we talk about home care is that in New Zealand, you have many things in your home where you can care for people who are sick or even terminally ill. But in Papua New Guinea, that's not the case. We have no running water, no electricity, no sanitation, nothing. So we're starting from a zero base. So the first thing that we were able to develop, actually with the help of people with full-blown AIDS, was a very, very simple bucket toilet. Because during the time you have full-blown AIDS, which in the Highlands can be about six months before you die, you have dysentery, acute dysentery. And you can sit on a toilet if you have one for hours and hours a day. So we came up with a very, very simple idea, which is primarily a bucket with a toilet lid on. Uh, it's half filled with water to give it stability, uses local herbs to give it a nice fragrant smell, and um, the juice of lemon is a mild disinfectant. And it really means that someone with HIV-AIDS doesn't have to sit on a bed and soil themselves, sit on the grass and soil themselves. They can actually have this very lightweight, it's less than two kilos, portable toilet and sit on it, carry it around with them if they want to. It's if we come along here to the shower. Again, it's all based around things you can buy. So the shower is based on a bucket uh, and we were able to purchase and utilise basic garden hose fittings with a, a rose petal spray attachment on the end. And the idea is that you hang this bucket up from a tree or from a stand and the person with AIDS can sit on the grass or on his chair and the carer, who doesn't want to have a shower with the person who has the disease, can use this extension arm, which is just a bit of garden hose pipe, and basically spray people like they would spray a garden, but washing them at the same time. More than 200 of these toilets, showers, washing machines and a portable hand basin have now been distributed. 
Another serious issue that an incoming government will be expected to deal with is corruption. Former Prime Minister Sir Makiri Murata says it's got worse since he left office in 2002. It has become systemic because the government has done nothing and in many ways supported uh, its extension uh, to to private sector and and, and deepening of, of that in the public sector. The Governor of Eastern Highlands Province, Malcolm Smith Keller, an Australian who has become a naturalised Papua New Guinean, claims a billion kina a year, or around 500 million New Zealand dollars, goes missing from public coffers. If he gets re-elected, he has definite plans in mind. Probably change the constitution so 10% of any budget would automatically be divided amongst the Ombudsman, the um, Auditor General, the Attorney General, the Solicitor General, the Judiciary, the Police and the National Monitoring Authority because right now the public servants who control the budget put no money into the check and control or minimum amount of money so they know that whatever they, can, whatever they decide to do to steal money, well, they get away scot-free because there's no method of checking or, or, or following it up or tracking it down. The anti-corruption watchdog agency Transparency International says recent investigations by Parliament's Public Accounts Committee and another in the Finance Department, controversially ended by the government, both uncovered extensive corruption. I asked TI's secretary, Richard Kassman, a Port Moresby businessman, how officials managed to get away with such large amounts of money. There's been a tremendous breakdown of governance, but I'd also think the crooks became more sophisticated about how to do these things. So the Finance Department inquiry and, and the Public Accounts Committee and, and inquiries highlighted this big issue that there are people where it's almost their profession to go out to, to milk the system. Public servants? Public, public servants and private people. There are uh, some landowner groups, some, some people who have worked the system. They've worked out how to do this. Another businessman and member of TI is Peter Eitze. He says while the economy is buoyant, the impact of corruption is less obvious. But he says if or when the commodities markets slump, there could well be a total breakdown in the delivery of services. We're up against a huge animal here, a huge monster that, that has penetrated into the public service. Our hope lays on these elections that come before us. And the intention of all uh, anti-corruption campaigners is to return a government who will have the will to clean out the public service and truly put in an anti-corruption stand which will, uh, which will be cemented in the performance of government. Travellers to PNG are left in no doubt there are problems with the more common or garden forms of crime. The emphasis on security is obvious. Almost all businesses have guards. You're even likely to be frisked as you leave the supermarket. Many homes and businesses are tucked behind three-metre-high fences, often topped with barbed wire. As Bishop Sarego and Garoka told me, these are all fairly recent developments. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there were no fences around. Houses were without fences. And, and then slowly, slowly, these particular elements of violence have come in. The security business is the biggest business in Papua New Guinea. It's the biggest business with, with thousands of, of security men all over the country. I believe that the country is not offering a police system which is effective where the police take the role of awareness into the village, to the people, not the policing, but police going there and say, this is the way, this is the law, these are the things, don't do this, don't do that. Today the police, sorry to say, but the police prefer to stay home 
And, and always they say, oh, we don't have car, we don't have fuel, somebody is murdered there, but we, we cannot go there, you know. And, and that doesn't help the people to appreciate the role of the police. I've seen lots of police travelling around in vehicles here. Yes, but only for their own. When you go there, you say, oh, I've been robbed last night, can you come and check? Oh, I don't, have the, I don't have the car, I don't have the fuel, can you buy the fuel, then I can come. Many cases like that. Into this raft of concerns add the country's growing population. It's increasing at 2.7% a year. It is just about at 6 million, or nearly three times what it was at independence in 1975. It's clearly no easy task that's ahead for the country's aspiring leaders, but 2,740 of them are chasing the 109 seats in Parliament. There's some hope the new voting system, Limited Preferential Voting, or LPV, will usher in a new type of government, one which, because it will be more democratic, may be more capable of confronting the country's problems. Under the old first-past-the-post system, candidates could, and did, win power with as little as 6% of the vote. The head of political science at the University of PNG in Port Moresby, Dr Oruvu Sepoy, says most needed less than 20% to get in. The MPs that were elected under the uh, first-past-the-post system and for those with very low percentages, you know, had to um, get into practices that were not conducive to, you know, equitable representation of the electorate because they could easily identify uh, who the um, 6% or 10% or, or 17% or, you know, uh, 20% of um, the people who had voted them in and they would simply be paying attention to them. Vote buying has been the perennial problem and it was hoped that the preferential system would eliminate it. But the cynical joke during the rounds is that a tick for number one costs 50 kina, number two, 30 kina, and a tick for three, 20. There's no doubt some votes are on the market. I believe it's, it's up to us. Like the elections doesn't interest us too much. Will you vote, though? Yeah, we'll vote. We'll vote. We'll, we'll, we'll vote. Have you guys seen money changing hands to try and get your vote? Or has someone offered to buy your vote? This can happen. Would you sell your vote? Yeah, of course. Why? I just said it for, like, they give me some money and then I can give them vote. But if I don't know, it's my own, like, if I want to go and vote, okay, I can go and vote. And if I don't want, I, can, I don't want to vote. So if someone doesn't offer you money, you're not going to vote for them? No. I can vote for another one, another person, like, my own choice. But if these guys, they pay us to vote, we can vote for them. Nowadays, for the election going on now, people will be spraying money in order to gain votes, which, which I believe that shouldn't be on. There are efforts, of course, aren't there now, to control that sort of behaviour by politicians? I believe it's pretty hard because uh, they've educated them that manner and I don't think it will come to a stop till or when, I do not know, when there's somebody becomes a very good leader or maybe some laws has to be changed in the government, things might fall in place. But currently, pretty hard. It's also hoped the changes will reduce tribal violence. In 2002, voting in six seats in Southern Highlands province was stopped as opposing candidates and their supporters had, in effect, gone to war. People are banking on politics and PNG becoming less adversarial, with candidates needing to form alliances. Dr Sepoy again. In the Highlands, yes, under the uh, by-elections we held under LPB, there have been a significant decrease in the level of violence, electoral violence, and um, there were signs of, you know, 
indications of uh, candidates working together. But uh, as I said earlier on, you know, some candidates uh, did not really understand the importance of uh, linking up with other partners in order to attract votes from the enemy tribes or from, you know, the other candidates' uh, support bases. It would be reasonable to assume that there will not be the widespread violence that there has been in the last several elections. Especially in the Highlands, um, from my own point of view, the nation knows that, the government knows that there's a lot of guns still in the Highlands, and um, when you have guns, in, you know, the potential for violence is there. That's one, you know, worry that I have uh, from my own personal point of view. But um, perhaps we'll have to rely on the work of the police to actually uh, reduce the level of violence in this election. More than 2,000 additional security personnel, mostly police, will be sent into the five Highlands provinces for the poll. While voting in other provinces will extend over 11 days, the police commissioner, Gary Barkey, says in the Highlands it'll be a rolling operation. All the resources will be deployed to one particular province. We conduct polling in that particular province, then we move to another province, then we move to another province, and, and so on. Mr Barkey says in southern and Anger provinces, the two most likely to see violence, the aim is to complete the vote in a single day. He says moving 2,000 personnel quickly by helicopters and planes will be a logistical nightmare. But he says it can be done, and he's been assured the necessary funding will be made available. There could be problems with the new voting method itself. The names of the candidates that a voter may choose will not be on the ballot, but on posters around the polling booths. For Agnes Sill, who works in remote parts of Chimbu province with the Cup Women for Peace, this is a cause for concern. Because the writing is involved in there, writing the name and the serial number. We are in a grassroots level, and a lot of people don't know how to write. I don't think it's going to work. But the Electoral Commissioner, Andrew Trowin, says there's a way around this. This is a very simple uh, uh, way of marking votes, uh, and I'm sure, and I'm confident uh, the, the, uh, the voters out there will uh, come in and place the votes, uh, and if they, if they do not know how to read and write, uh, they can bring in somebody of their own choice to come and help them and mark their ballot paper. There are other factors that could disrupt the vote. Just how good is the updated role? How well do people understand the new preference system and the longer time needed for the count for which no additional security has yet been set aside? But there are many people banking on this poll heralding a new direction for the country. Voting is scheduled to last two weeks and starts on Saturday week.